for those of you who've been journeying with us over the last three weeks, we've been sharing around this theme that really is what happens when Jesus comes. Um, and if, uh, if you're new and you haven't been part of that, basically with the first week we shared about what happens when Jesus comes and meets with tax collectors. We also then shared last week what happens when Jesus comes to a wedding. And I just loved how our pit just opened up what it means that the Lord doesn't do a patchwork on our lives. That um, he comes from inside and changes water into wine. He changes us from within. And that whole theme of are we anticipating miracles? And so this morning, um, I'm going to continue. And you'll see that through the summer, we're going to be sharing so many of these amazing moments that we find in God's word as Jesus comes and, and really meets people in different places and different, different, and, in different circumstances and breaks into their lives. Really an incredible thing. Um, the one thing is that there's no real template. If you look at Jesus, there is just no template. There's always something unique, and he meets people in the Gospels and in our lives, really, with different, different temperaments and different desires, and it's a personal, it's a personal meeting. <clears throat> um, as we spoke about in, in the first one, when Jesus meets Matthew, then was called Levi first, he just invites himself to dinner. If you look at another example that we'll find later in the Bible, when he meets with Mary, the first person he meets after the resurrection, he meets her personally, he calls her by name, and he allows her to cling to him. There's so many amazing moments if you just allow yourself the time and see what the Lord is saying to us as he comes into people's lives and it's real for us, for us in our living and, and the way we're living today. So today, <clears throat> so t- this morning, I'm going to be sharing specifically when Jesus comes and meets Paul on the road to Damascus. And I'm really trusting, honestly, I'm just trusting that the Lord would come and challenge us and draw us closer to him because the the truths that are found in this amazing passage is something that should not leave us. And I've really been praying that the Lord would use this and, and use the words that I've prepared and that it would speak into our lives in, in, a, in a mighty way. <clears throat> so without any further, let's, let's get straight to it. And I want to go to Acts. It's found in Acts chapter 9. And I'm going to read from verses 1 to verses 7. This is the word of the Lord. But, stalls, but Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that, he, that if he found any belonging to the way, which was the, the, the name that was, what was used for Christians, they were part of the way. Men or women, he met to bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so now from verse three. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. If you look at these verses, verse 3 
If you can just picture what happened in that moment. Jesus comes. He not only comes into Paul's life, he crashes into Paul's life. With a blinding light. Kind of, kind of trying to picture what that, what that must have been like. And you can see his immediate response to be in the presence of God. He falls to the ground. Being in the presence of God, he falls to the ground. And the words that he uses, and I'm going to look at Paul's words that he uses specifically, the way he responds to God, and then we're going to look at Jesus. But look at the words that he responds as he's in the presence of God. He says these four words. He says, who are you, Lord? If you look at the Strong's and the reference to this specific Greek passage, it says in the Greek, who are you, Kyrios, which is God, Lord, Master. We understand just from those words, from the first thing that he acknowledges that he's in the presence of God. No questions about that. And then the answer of Jesus flipped his world completely upside down. Because Jesus responds and says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Those words must have changed his thinking, the whole life in which he had led diligently, changed It must have been such a shock to him in that moment. But to understand a little bit about why this would have been such a radical moment for Paul, we need to understand who Paul was. You'll see that he's referred to Saul in this passage, so his name changed from Saul of Tarsus to Paul. Um, And I'm going to refer to him as Paul because that's how he's referred to in all the letters. But you need to understand the reality of who Paul was. We know that um, he's spoken of in chapter 7, verse 58, once before, a small little passage where it says that Paul, the young Paul, was standing and he was taking the cloaks at his feet for all those. He was present at the stoning of Stephen. He was present at, at, at the whole experience of what, what Stephen was when he shared his testimony He was there, he was in the camp of the Pharisees because he was basically a young prodigy and they gave him all their cloaks while they stoned Stephen to death. It's the only reference you have of Paul before this specific passage. And then you hear this specific call that that he's in front of the Lord and you've got to get an understanding of who Paul really is. And I wrote a few things down. He He would have been known, he would have been taught that there is only one God. And yet these Christians of calling Jesus God. As I said, he would have been present at the testimony of Stephen before he was stoned to death. He would have known, as Stephen proclaimed in, that, in his, or the whole of chapter six and almost the whole of Acts chapter seven, he just shares with this whole community of the, the high priest and the whole council, and in the end he really says this amazing statement. He says, but Jesus has come to abolish the priesthood, the sacrificial system, And Paul would have known from the way he was brought up, knowing the Torah, that 
that's not possible. That means whole sections of the Bible would be obsolete. In his mind, God would never do something like that. He would know from, from being a, a Pharisee of Pharisees um, that would have followed all the rules and all the regulations to the T. He would have known that the Messiah it would come <clears throat> um, as a descendant of David and strike the earth with a rod of his hand, with a, with a strike, the, strike the earth with a rod of his mouth and gather the people and defeat all their enemies. That is found in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 11. Chapter 11, verse 1 to 16. He would also know that because Jesus was crucified, he never was able to do any of that. So he could never be the Messiah. He'd also know from having learned this from, the, from Deuteronomy, that if someone dies as a criminal and is hung on a tree, he is cursed by God. I'm going to read that passage specifically because it gives you the details of the understanding of what he'd known and he would be able to argue this to everybody around him that was saying that Jesus is the Messiah because he knew the word of God. In Deuteronomy 20, uh, 21 verses 22 to 23, just, just hear this. It says, and if a man is committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall be not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him in the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for your inheritance. Friends, Jesus not, did not just merely die. He died a shameful death as a criminal, and clearly God had rejected him and abandoned him not confirming him as the king. He would have felt confident. He would have felt absolutely zealous for the fact that the way he knew who God was and the way he believed God was, that he could pursue all these radicals who were fleecing the flock and were causing people to move away from their Jewish roots. He would have felt that he would be empowered to bring them shackled back to Jerusalem. That is the Paul that you need to understand because then Jesus comes and on that road to Damascus, Paul is confronted with the resurrected Jesus and it is just an irrefutable fact in his presence, holy, pure, Jesus declaring who he is. There's no questions in his life he had the privilege of seeing and believing. No doubts in his mind. He was knocked flat by the presence of God who declared to him that I am Jesus. And right there and then, he didn't know the answers to all those objections that he just made. But he knew one thing. He was standing before God. And uh, the beauty of this is, it's such a reality for all of us that you know, he, he went from there to work out the how on all the questions he had. But he obeyed. We learn from the, from the next few verses, he was struck blind from that presence of God. And he had to be led by the hand to Damascus. And for three days he was blind. And as soon as his eyesight was, re was restored, um, 
as one of the disciples, and we'll read about that now now, <clears throat> prayed for him, he went straight to the synagogues and started preaching. When we read that in Acts chapter 9, verses 20, let me just read that. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus is in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Something so dramatic and so amazing happened to this man to change who he was and what he was because he experienced Jesus as the risen Savior. <clears throat> All those objections that he had before, the beautiful thing about the scriptures, if you look at the gospels and if you look at all his letters, for every one of those objections and more, he actually gives a wonderful argument to explain why Jesus is the Messiah, why he is the Son of God. And I'm not gonna try to do all of those because that would just take up all the time. But I thought, I said, I just wrote it down here and I said, I just wanna mention one because I just, I just want to mention one. So just allow me, just one example. We speak about the, the curse that is on the tree. And you've got to understand his way of thinking and his, and his mindset of how he must have gone through this reality. Because remember, the law needed to be fulfilled. <clears throat> and I wrote it down like this. And I said, um, you've got to follow his train of thought. And this is <clears throat> how it must probably went down. Since Jesus was cursed, according to the rabbinic law, and rejected by God because he was hung on a tree. But then he was raised from the dead. And I saw it, I'm a witness to that. So therefore he was vindicated from the curse that God had to have because of the law. So he must have been cursed for somebody else. Could it be that he was absorbing the curse of the sin for all of us. And that kind of way in which he describes it, you find in Galatians. In Galatians chapter three, if you wanna read from verse 10 to verse 13, I'm just gonna take the last verses like the cream and just show you how he, how he explains that to us. As, he's, as, he, as he worked through the objections, he'd experienced the Lord and he was able to argue and set this straight because Jesus was resurrected. If you look at verse 13, he says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Straight from Deuteronomy 21. So Paul just does this all over you. If you want to read more, just read Hebrews. Just, just go and look at some of these incredible things where he, he shows why Jesus is who he is and how amazing that is. <clears throat> The moment that he saw Jesus, everything changed. For that, up to that point, for Paul at that stage, as Saul, the Bible was a series of laws and moral stories of how to live your life to please God. That is how he would interpret the Bible and he would, with all that he is, try to live his life according to those laws and rules so that he could please God. That's, that's how Paul was. That's the truth. But after seeing Jesus as a resurrected savior, everything was turned on its head. Today the world looks at this Bible and they see laws and rules that for them are out of date 
archaic. And for those that follow him, follow these rules, it is, it, it, they, 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 they're confident and arrogant to argue. And then to add to that, they experience a church who they've seen through the ages has done terrible things. There's moments in our lives where we are confronted with people that quote things in the media where they say, how can you be a Christian when, when this and this and this has happened? They quote things out of the Bible and says, but how can you believe this? And you know, friends, the truth is, or the perception is, that you can't really argue it if you don't have the resurrection in mind. Because they don't have the resurrection frame set, the resurrection sense that this is God when they argue. They argue from, the, from, a, from a framework that, that is completely not even considering the fact that God is who he says he is. And that's the only thing that we had. I wrote it down like this, and I, I just want to say this specifically that I don't mess it all up. The Bible is not a rule book on how to live our lives pleasing to God. The Bible is a single coherent history, a wonderful story, true story, of how God was bringing salvation into the world with a climax in Jesus Christ. The truth that I realized as I was wrestling with this is that the truth is, friends, for me, that if you're wrestling with God on the things that you read about God in this amazing word of God, there's things that you've got to deal with. There's parts of the Lord, when you read this, that are scary. There's, there's certain parts that it's just hard to accept. There's certain things that, that are really comforting and just great. But the more and more I read God's word, it challenges me. But here's the difference. Because I know that Jesus is the son of God and has risen from the dead, he is God. And I made this statement, I've written it out there. The challenging fact is that our beliefs about God are driven by our personal wants and needs. The way we shape how we want God to be. Some of us want a, want a God who just is able to deal with the immorality. Others want a God that is able to just, you know, accept all and be grace to everybody. Our beliefs drive the way we want to shape God. But we need to wrestle with this reality. Because the truth for all of us is that God is who he is. And we've got to accept that. I've said this as well, yeah, that, um, I just want to quote this, that I need to ask myself, am I able to know that God is who he is and not the way I want him to be. And I've got to work through that as each of us has to. Um, yes, it challenges the way that I try to, 
define my God in the one dimension or two dimensions that I like about him. But when you read the Bible, and this is where we can wrestle with this, when you read the Bible and you hear what Jesus says, does it make you feel always in that happy place? Or does it challenge you? When you read the Bible, does it, does it give you a sense that, okay, I don't want to go there, so I'll just continue to put the way I understand God in this box, and I just hope no one asks me those kind of questions. Are we, are we able to say to one another that we're, we, we, we are prepared to let God shape us? Because the big truth is for all of us that if Jesus is risen, just like Paul, we've got to realize that he is who he is. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He's the Lord of the universe. And if he's risen, then I must allow him to shape me. And that's what Paul did. He didn't have the answers, but he believed. And he started working through this. And that is the, the journey of conversion. That is the journey of sanctification. Of as we, as we journey with the Lord and we wrestle with the Lord in a, in a, in a reverent way. I just, uh, I said this, and I got the quote now. Unless you have a God who's telling you the things that you don't want to be true, you're never gonna be changed. When he tells you things that are too good to be true. It's not my quote, it's Tim Keller's quote. <laughs> it was a good one. Um, but that just hit me. I read that a while ago, and I thought, Lord, that's it. Let me just find that quote. Unless you're willing to experience God who challenges you about the things that are just hard to believe. How will we ever believe the things that are so good to be true? Things that like we are, we are you know, children of God, we are adopted by God, that we will be resurrected with him. Those are the things that are too incredible to be true, but they are true. And the reality is we've got to allow God to shape us because in my life, there are so many people that I love and I've journeyed with and family and friends who at some stage were on fire for God. And they've just allowed to create a God who is just comfortable. With, when they speak about it and they've mixed in a bit of spiritualism, they've, they've added a whole lot of things and he's, he's good to everybody. And, he's, and if you look at it, you just realize, but they created God the way they want him to be. And they've missed the fact that this is the risen Jesus. There is no other. And it's uncomfortable, but it's real. And the journey is amazing, but it's real. I mean, the journey is hard, but it's real. The journey is worth it, and it's real. This is what Paul experienced. And I just praise God that sometimes he needs to shake us a bit. Paul had to be shaken for him to move away from what he believed. And it changed him forever. And because of that, we've been blessed in such an incredible way. So that's the first part that I wanted to share about what Paul's experience was and how he responded. Um, and now we're going to look at what Jesus says and how Jesus specifically speaks into his life as he comes into that moment. And I'm going to take us back to Acts chapter 9, verses 3 to 5. 
And it's, it's just starting from verse three. It says, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice from the Lord say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? These first few words that he heard from the Lord. It's such an insightful truth that is shared in these words alone that changed this man forever. You know, you've got to ask yourself the question. It's a good question you ask. As a man, there's a blazing presence, the radiance of God's glory, Jesus falling flat in his presence, you know, how could that man be hurting God? It doesn't really make sense if you think about it. Shouldn't it have been said, you know, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute them? No. Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Christ is claiming something so intimate and deep and this is the truth that I'm wanting to share with us today. This union that he's speaking about there is profound. And it's an identity that we need to know and we need to own and we need to have as part of who we are. He's saying that if you touch them, you touch me. You've heard some guys at school say that or you know, if you've had a bigger brother, when one of the little brothers have been bullied and you can stand there and say, if you touch my brother, you're gonna touch me. It's not, not the same, but, <laughs> but, it's, but it's a similar picture. The, the, the Lord is saying this, if you take that truth all away, what's true for me, Jesus says, is true for them. It's a huge thing. I hurt when they hurt. In, the, in all the letters that Paul writes, he uses this phrase, in Christ, in the Lord, over 160 times. Friends, this was what made us so different as Christians and followers of Jesus. There's so many different examples. I'm gonna use one because there's, I had like three or four and I said, I'll just use one. So I'm gonna take us to Ephesians chapter six, uh, chapter two, verse six, and I want you to hear what Paul says here. He says, this is Ephesians chapter two, verse six, he says, and he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. The first thing I want you just to know, you've heard Piet actually start some of the messages, some of the, some of the times as we worship with this specific verse. There's a reality in this verse alone that just needs to just sit there with you. Everything he says there's in the past tense. This is not gonna happen to you and me. He's saying that we, he's saying this specifically, he said we're united with Christ so that in God's eyes we are free from sin. It's a penalty. He's saying that when he sees us, he sees Jesus. And Jesus has paid for that sin. When I see my, my son, I see you. You receive the same benefits and the honor that Jesus has. You were with him, this is what we get our heads around, when he was crucified. You've got to just sit with that one and say, Selah, Selah is a, a way of just pondering on it. Just take that for a week and say, Lord, show me how I can get that from my head into my heart. 
And there's two wonderful things about this amazing statement, that this union that we have. Two wonderful things that we need to know and we need to, know, we need to own. The first is that it's a legal status that we have in Christ, in this beautiful unity that we have in Christ. It's, there's, a, there's a legal status, it's a legal reality that we have. And <clears throat> you've heard us preach about this often in this church. You've heard me say that as well many times. There's, there's this re- legal reality. It says that we are justified by faith. And we are made righteous, it's a legal state, by the blood of the, blood of the Lamb. What does that mean? When we are justified by faith, it means it's just as if we've never sinned. What it means to be righteous, it means it's nothing right that we've done, but we, we get the robe of righteousness of Jesus Christ. When, when, when the Father sees us, he doesn't see the right things and the wrong things that we've done because we are flawed and we are broken, but he sees Jesus' rights, rightness. And it's a legal status. Now, a lot of us don't know that or don't own that. It's, it's very easy to determine this. And I'm gonna challenge you when I say this. But when people ask you if you are a Christian, listen for this one. If people ask you if you're a Christian and you say, well, I'm trying to be one, you've missed the first principle of what it means to be a Christian. Because you either are a Christian or you're not a Christian. You're either married or you're not married. You're either adopted or you're not adopted. You're not, well, I'm trying to be adopted. I'm working hard at it. It doesn't work like that. And this is the identity that we should know legally that we have when we're in Christ. Because Jesus is saying, when you hurt them, you hurt me. Because they are me. Peace of me is in them. The second beautiful point of this wonderful reality is that it's not just a legal status, but it's a spiritual thing as well. We have the Spirit of God inside of us. A few weeks ago, I preached this message on the living hope, and, and if you want a little more detail, have a listen to that. But this, this, this reality is that the Spirit in us enables us to experience the divine nature of God because the Spirit is within us. And how does that work? Very practically, we've experienced it this morning when we were worshiping together, when you met somebody that you haven't seen for a while because of COVID. And it's just lovely to worship with them because there's this, there's this bond we have because we're one in Christ. And, and it's just like, that, like Jesus says, if, if, if we have this divine nature, um, it's, if it, the hand is connected to the, to the rest of the body through this nervous system. When the hand hurts, our head knows about it. And in a similar way, when you hurt something on your leg, your hand goes down. Or you hurt your hand, your, your other hand goes, oh, your, your tongue goes, mm, that was sore. That's the body. We've experienced that in our, in our church this week and in our own little small group. I'm not gonna mention names, but I, I just experienced that we, when we were praying for one of our small group and one of our friends prayed for someone else in the small group and he started crying. That's when I thought, well, oh, Lord, I gotta write this down. This is what it means. That's the practicality of being in Christ, of having the divine nature of God. That's not normal, folks. It's not normal. It's the blessings of being in Christ. And it's a beautiful thing. And yes, it's hard to understand God, but he gives us these amazing things, these realities to deal with life. 
I have two scriptures. I've, I'm almost sorry, probably Alex, I'm going to go back a bit. I just wanted to, because when you read the word, it's just great. I'm going to read Romans 3 verse 28. And this is just reiterating the faith. It says, for we hold this one for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from his works of the law. Incredible statement. And then the whole piece of what Peter describes that we are, have the divine nature of God is found in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3 verse, uh, no, in Philippians 3 verse 9. It says, and becoming one with him, I no longer count myself own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. Those were the two scriptures when we were looking at the legal side. And then if we look at this scripture specifically, now I'm back to where I was supposed to be in 2 Peter, where we speak about the divine nature of God. I want to just read this. It's specifically, it says, and because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share in the divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. It's just an incredible reality. And the wonderful thing about this passage that we read, where Jesus comes and meets with Paul, we read on, if we get to Acts chapter 9, verse uh, 17, Paul had this happen to him. The Holy Spirit comes into his life. He's blind, and Aeneas comes into the room and he declares this and he says so Ananias departed and entered the house and laid his hands on him and said brother Saul the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that I may regain that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit it goes on to say that as Ananias prayed for him his eyesight was restored and bold he started preaching the gospel. The spirit inside of him. The challenge that we all have, friends, is are we able to be honest with one another? Have we created a God that meets our own desires? For those that are, are joining us online who, who don't know the Lord or who, have, who, have, who have, are, are, are new to this, um, I need to ask that if you're starting on this journey and you want to know what it means to have Jesus come into your life, start looking at, at the Gospels and start looking for these encounters that Jesus has. Start looking at his character. Allow the Lord to meet you as he's met many of us here. And the resurrection would be the basis for you to be able to stand with all the objections that you face because the world is a harsh place. And for all of those of us that are in this place that, have, that are Christians and you've been challenged like I was in preparing this message, realizing that if the resurrection happened, then there's a God who created me for himself and ultimately Christianity is gonna fit me if I accept it or not. I need to wrestle with it. And I need to check myself when I try to create a God according to my own desires, my personal desires, because it's so easy to do that. So that just like Paul, we'll get to that space where we'll be able to say, Lord, I don't know all the answers, but 
Here am I, Lord. Use me. This is the, the joy of meeting Jesus in these moments. It is a real privilege to be able to share this word with you.